Let me get us into uh, God's word this morning. Luke 10, verses 25 through 37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm going to read it, pray, and dive in. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How how do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, By telling this parable, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers, stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, which is equivalent to about two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Would you pray with me? We have this slippery... Sinister sort of ability to get out of what the law in many ways was designed to do. Expose how utterly short we fall from your glory and your holiness and your righteous standard. We have this way of reducing things so that we can still feel good about ourselves and reassure ourselves we are in the right. But here this morning with this parable, you're wanting to unmask that. You're wanting to uncover our slipperiness, our deception. You're wanting to expose the desperate need we all have for the grace that's available to us in Jesus. And so, God, this morning, I I pray that you would use our time in your word towards that end. I pray you'd go after our hearts. You don't want our externals. You don't want our behavior ultimately. You're after our hearts because you know if you get our hearts, the rest of it all changes with it. And so this morning, here we are, Lord. We're fools to think we can hide from you the eyes that see all, we ask you, use your word. Get in and and divide bone from marrow, soul from spirit, and lead us to the cross together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me um, try to set up our time together this morning with a quick consideration of verses 25 to 28. I'm going to want to focus in on the parable that comes later, uh, verses 29 and following. Um, but I want to at least use these first verses to kind of set the background for us uh, as we make our way towards that. Uh, first thing we need to be clear on is what is meant by a lawyer here. You see in verse 25, behold, a lawyer stood up. Now, we're not talking about those courtroom dramas that you like to watch in the evening before you go to bed. We're not talking about uh, uh, law and order or whatever those sorts of things are and the debate that goes back and forth before the judge in the court. That's not what's meant by lawyer here. 
What's meant by lawyer here is one who is well-versed or an expert in the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law, otherwise known as the Torah or the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. That's what this man who stands up to ask Jesus a question is an expert in. In other words, you could say, here's a guy who knows his Bible. Here's a guy who really knows his stuff. If there was a man uh, among the crowd here whom you would think, man, he knows the right answer. Man, he's a good, upstanding Jew, follower of God. He's the sort of guy that everyone should want to be like. This would be the guy. This is the kid, or this is the kid in your Awanis class, if you guys know what I'm talking about, who has every verse memorized. It just puts everyone to shame. He's got all the badges. I never did Awanis, but I hear about it. We're thinking about doing it this, uh, this coming year. So if you have suggestions on a good one, let me know. But this is the kid in Iwanis who knows all the verses. He's got all, all the bling that says, man, this guy knows his Bible. And he stands up here and he asks Jesus a question. Now, the initial question this lawyer asks is at least on the surface of it. Well and good. Here's what he says. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 25. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? When you stop and think about it, it's a question that we all would do well to ask. Uh, And it's a question, actually, that rings out throughout the scriptures. Um, I'll give you just a few. Probably the closest to this is what comes out of the Philippian jailer's mouth in Acts 1630. After this whole thing goes down and he sees the love of Christ in Paul and he, he watches what happens and he goes, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? We might think of when John the Baptist is speaking of the coming Messiah and he's talking about scary stuff, the day of wrath and fire that's coming. And these guys are hearing this and they're going, oh, my goodness, Luke 3.10. What then shall we do? I don't want to I don't want to die. I don't want to be cut down and thrown into that. What then shall we do in light of the impending crisis or after the spirit falls on Peter and he opens his mouth in Acts 2 to kind of proclaim the gospel and the good news of Jesus so that he's not dead, but he's alive and there's salvation available. People cry out, brothers, Acts 2.37, what shall we do? It's a question worthy of our consideration. It really is most important. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It presupposes the fall. It presupposes that something's off and we need to get back to God in some way. It presupposes the reality that we are in desperate need. Now, I wonder if you have ever asked it. How do I get right with God? How do I get out of this realm of death and back into the realm of life, life abundant, life eternal with Him? Sometimes we get so distracted with our current earthly life that we don't stop to ask, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And I'm just going to take time to talk to any kids that are in the room here. I mean, Bottom line is, is as kids, it's, I think you would hear a question about eternal life and think uh, eternal life. My life is just beginning. I'm not worried about the end of this life. I'm not worried about it not going on life. I'm, I'm, I'm five. I'm six. I'm seven. I'm eight years old. I'm not worried about eternal life. I've got plenty of life right here and now. But the unfortunate reality and a reality we wish we could shield you from is that. The curse of death is hanging over this world. And I think some kids have probably already experienced that, whether that's with a loved one, grandma, grandpa, something like that. But it's here. And it's a question that we need to face, not just older people on their way to the grave, but younger people from the very beginning. How do I inherit eternal life? So... Having um, 
said all of this, that what this man is asking here is a, is a very good question and one that we all should consider. Uh, what we realize is that this lawyer is asking a good question in the wrong way. A good question with the wrong motive, with the wrong heart. Um, on the surface, it seems good enough, but Luke gives us a little detail there in verse 25 that unmasks his motive. Did you catch it? And behold, a lawyer stood up to what? Ask him an honest question because he wanted to follow Jesus and learn from him? No. Stood up to put him to the test. See, what we need to understand here is that when this lawyer stands up, it's not a posture of humility. Of I want to learn from you. I want to be a disciple. I want to be instructed. It's actually a posture of superiority. Okay. There's all this talk around town about Jesus of Nazareth. Well, let's see if he really knows his stuff or if he's just a quack like I suspect he might be. Let me ask him a question. Let me put him to the test. How well does he know the law? Is it as good as I do or not? What's awesome is that Jesus will have nothing of it if you noticed. Jesus is going to kind of flip the question on him. It's kind of this nice Jesus-like way of saying, sit back down. Get in the proper place here. Let's turn this around. He, he turns the test back on his, his self-proclaimed proctor. <laughs> and this is what he says. What is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, I know what you're doing. You tell me. You tell me. What is written in the law? How do you inherit? That right there is gross. That. Nobody needs to see that. That was, uh, we'll call it a palmetto bug. We'll call it a roach. But there it is, right for Brian when he gets to the worship service. There you go, man. <laughs> I think he wanted to get saved. Either that or he, it's like demonic. He's trying to attack me. Uh <laughs> Uh, where was I? Oh, <laughs> that doesn't happen every day. Thank you, John. Um, he turns the question back on him. How do you answer uh, this question? How does what does a person have to do to inherit eternal life? Well, what we're going to find is that this man answers rightly. Verse 27. Here's what we see. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. With all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. These are elsewhere uh, things that Jesus himself will point to and say, here are the two great commandments in all the law. Here's what sums it up. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. This is it. So the man gets it right. And Jesus tells him that you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. You want an eternal life. You get going on that and you will live. Good. You ready? You got it. You passed the test. I know you were testing me, but I'm telling you, you passed. Excellent. But now, now we're set up to start to move towards our parable in verses 29 and following. Um, before we do, I just want to give you a brief outline where we're going to be going for the rest of our time together. We're going to look at first wrong questions. That's going to be verse 29. Second, right answers. That's verses 30 to 37. And then finally, we're going to look at gospel clues that are kind of strewn throughout this entire text. Wrong questions, right answers, gospel clues. So, the question that the lawyer asks in verse 25, right question, wrong motive. He's going to ask another question now in verse 29. But here what we see is it's, this question is just wrong by all accounts. Wrong question, wrong motive. And that's going to kind of play out as we go. Look at verse 29. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I get it. I'm supposed to love my neighbor if I want to inherit eternal life. But who is my neighbor? Desiring to justify himself. Who is my neighbor? Let me take these one at a time as they appear. Wrong motive, wrong question. First, that what we see is the wrong motivation. 
desiring to justify himself. We'll stop and ask for a moment, especially with kids in the room, what does this mean? What does it mean to desire to justify yourself? It's a big Bible word. It sounds confusing, but we all do it. And I wonder if there are kids in here who have ever been in trouble, um, aren't always saintly and perfect, and you get in trouble. And when you're being kind of called out on uh, your disobedience, what often happens? Yes, well, I may have not listened to you, but my brother did this. Try to deflect. You try to say, I'm not all that bad. At least, okay, I did something bad here, but I'm not as bad as him. Or you might say, oh, yes, I messed up right now. But this morning, did you see I got all my homework done? I did everything you asked. Yes, I know right now I did something that wasn't the best. But this morning, wasn't I great? These are the sorts of things we do to try to justify or kind of defend that we're right. We're okay. We're not all wrong. Really, what it means when we're talking about uh, trying to justify ourselves is to say, I don't want to say I'm sorry. I don't want to say I'm wrong. I don't want to say I need help. I don't want to just admit that what's going on is not right. I kind of always want to throw in something that says, no, 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 but I'm still awesome, right? That's sort of the idea, and that's really what we see here. And I think every adult in this room knows this is not just a kid problem. My goodness, can I say sorry to my wife without going, but how did I do yesterday? Wasn't I? I mean, didn't you see I did the dishes? Come on, man. Just own it, right? This is what this man is doing here. He's attempting to justify himself. Wrong motivation. Wrong motivation. And he's going to try to justify himself by asking a wrong question. By asking Jesus really to kind of define the terms. Here's the question. Who exactly is my neighbor? He's saying, if it's required of me that I love my neighbor as myself, if I should hope to inherit eternal life, well then, who exactly is my neighbor? Define it. Now, if you're... If you're reading carefully, you can sense the falseness in this from the very beginning. Because here's what he's starting to feel. He's starting to feel what the law was meant to expose, which is how utterly short he falls. He's starting to feel the the comprehensive sort of weight of the call to love all people, to move out in love for people. And instead, what he's saying is, no, 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 the technical word you, 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 you used was neighbor. Now, when I think of neighbor, I think of the people who live right next to me or whatever. Okay, you know, I, surely you don't mean I got to love that guy over there. I got to love that guy over there. I got to love all these other people that get on my nerves. But maybe I can do it with those two. Maybe we'll include that, that crazy guy across the street with all those cats. Fine. I can love those people, but don't you start to balloon this out into loving all because I can't do that. He's trying to justify himself by reducing, wiggling out from under the call, whittling it down to something he can manage, feel good about, even while he's not fully uh, following. Does that make sense? Again, to speak uh, perhaps at a kid's level to show you how relevant the Bible is. We're doing this sort of thing from day one. This is what happens in your house when mama says, don't hit your brother. And later, when you push your brother and you get in trouble, you go, but I didn't hit him. Define the terms. You said hit. You didn't say I couldn't kick. You didn't say I couldn't push. You didn't say I couldn't spit my tongue out at him or or, or throw my mac and cheese across the table at him. You said don't hit. I obeyed. Right? Defining the terms, whittling down, reducing the call so that it's something that feels manageable, that you feel good about, like you, you're obeying even as you're disobeying. Because we know the heart behind that command from mommy, and it was love your brother, love him, 
move towards him with kindness. Animosity in your heart towards another is not appropriate. But we try to kind of break that down so that we can disobey while still feeling obedient. This is what is going on here. Adults play this game too. God says, love my neighbor. Well, technically speaking, who is my neighbor? I can hate that guy over there, but I guess I'll love them. I'll do it if it'll get me eternal life. Fine. And if this is where you're at with God's law, with with God's rule, with God's word, then we've missed it. We've missed what often we talk about the the spirit of the law for the letter. And this is what the Pharisees and the scribes were professionals at. Just we'll do all the letter, but we have none of the spirit of it. None of the heart of it. This call to love your neighbor is not meant to kind of get you to go and bring cookies to the people who live next door. It's supposed to be a driving force flowing to you from God's love, moving out through you to all people. It's the sort of thing that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5.14 when he's trying to make sense of his mission for people and why in the world is he spending his life, wasting his life, you could say, in the service of others, going here and there, getting beaten and flogged and rejected and yet still loving and moving towards. Why? He says right here, 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ controls Or constrains or compels us. There's a driving force in me that moves me out in love for other people. When you catch that, all of a sudden you start to catch a little bit more of the falseness of this man's question. Well, technically, who is my neighbor? When we're asking those questions, it means we've never fully tasted the love of God for us. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. Now, <clears throat> these are the wrong questions asked in the wrong way. And when Jesus hears this sort of thing, I love how he responds. He doesn't even answer it, it directly. He just tells a story. So all right, let's go on a journey. I want to see what you think now. And this is where we get to what's been known as the parable of the good Samaritan. And what I want to do is read through the parable. Jesus tells us bit by bit and make a few notes, make sure we get things right and we can kind of see what Jesus is after and the right way to think about this idea of loving our neighbor. So look again at verse 30 then. He says this, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So this man is obviously in a desperate place. I've been told that I guess coming down from Jerusalem, this kind of went into this valley and it was this kind of dark, freaky place where scary dudes could be. And this man happened to come across some of those robbers and they came upon him, took his stuff and left him there to die. Not exactly a a child's (laughs) bedtime story, but reality nonetheless. This man is in a desperate place. Jesus continues. Oh, what good news. What good news. Verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. A priest was going down that road. And when he saw him. He passed by on the other side. He pulled one of these things. Whoops. And he just kept walking. That guy dying. I don't know. Ain't my problem. I'm busy. Just kept walking. What good news, verse 32, there's another man coming down the road. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he sees him there. Passed by on the other side of the road. Shielded his eyes and kept walking. Now stop. Stop. Priests and Levites, who are they? These are men of Israel, Jews, who were set apart and called by God to serve him in his temple. Okay? These are the guys who'd be involved in the worship of Yahweh. In in intimate sort of ways. There in Jerusalem. 
And whether these men are traveling towards the temple or they're coming back from serving there, uh, it doesn't really matter. The emphasis, the impact is the same. These are the sorts of guys who should. Let's put it this way. If anyone, if anyone should be ready to serve a, a, a wounded, broken, half-dead man on the side of the road, surely it is those people who serve God day after day, in the temple. The temple sacrifices. The, the, the ability to move close to a holy God. Though we're sinners. His mercy upon us. All that stood for. God with us. All that stuff was meant to change. These men's hearts should be their daily reality. And yet. Pass by on the other side. When they see that need reflected in someone else. Uh, I'm not sure. And they left him there. To die. No doubt they justified themselves as they did it. Perhaps they said, oh, I got to get home to my kids. Can't keep mama waiting. Perhaps they said uh, if they were headed towards the temple, I got to get to my duties. Can't keep my other brothers waiting. Or perhaps knowing the ceremonial law and things like Leviticus 21, they say, if this guy's truly dead and I touch him, I'm unclean. And that creates a whole dilemma if I'm supposed to do my priestly duties or whatever else. So I guess I'll kind of stay back, pass by on the other side. Justified themselves, reduced the call of God on them to show mercy to others and love their neighbor. They felt justified while doing it. The story is not done. Verse 33. Here's where we actually start to get to good news. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, this dying man. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Finally, the right response. He didn't shield his eyes and go by the other side. He had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. There are two things that we need to notice here in particular. The first thing is that this man is a Samaritan. Now, I know many of us may know this, but uh, kids in our midst might not. And plenty of others also might be unfamiliar. Samaritans were kind of this half-breed. They were despised by Jews. Jesus knows what he's doing in this story. The two who should have been the hero, uh, heroes, the priest, the Levite, they both pass up on the opportunity. And here comes this guy who's despised by the Jews, the Samaritan. And he does what? The law requires. He does what the heart of this loving neighbor is all about. But Samaritans uh, intermarried with Gentiles. So they were considered tainted ethnically. But then they also uh, uh, were considered tainted religiously. As they had their own version of the Bible. They had their own place of worship and temple and things. So there was this sort of animosity between uh, Jew and Samaritan. Perhaps even more so than between Jew and Gentile. Just because you used to kind of be with us and now you're this other thing. For the kids. Now, I don't know if this is relevant or not anymore. I don't know what the playground's like these days. I kind of shudder at the thought of what elementary school playground is like. I feel like things get worse, but I don't really know. Back in my day, there was something called cooties. Okay, anybody, did anybody have this? Do they still do this today? Okay, there was something called cooties. Now, what this, what this was, was, okay, every boy, whether he had a little crush on a girl or not, uh, had to say, no, the other girls in this class or on the playground, it's gross. They got cooties. And all the girls, whether they had a little crush or whatever on the other boys or however that worked out, had to kind of say, ooh, boys, they're gross. They got cooties. Now, cooties are basically these little pretend germs that we imagine the other person has. And if they even touch us, we're going to get that filthy thing that they have. And we don't want that. So we try to keep our distance. We try to stay clear. You don't want the cooties. Now, Samaritans had cooties. That's the point. Samaritans have cooties. And yet, uh, here we see the Samaritan moving towards 
those people who would be his enemy and loving them. Loving them. Being a good neighbor. And that's actually the second thing that I, I, I want you to, to, to notice here. This man loves his neighbor well. When he saw him, he had compassion, and this compassion moved him towards this compassion compelled. We talked about the love of Christ compelling us to go towards neighbor. That's what this is. Compassion compels. It moves you. And it moved him. So if you notice, he put his plans on hold. He clearly had somewhere to be. That's why he says, uh, hey, listen, I got to go, but I'll come back and make sure it's all right. He put his plans on hold. How many times do I struggle with someone who comes to me with needs because I have other plans? And I'm not saying it always means we're just saying yes. We have priorities and even Jesus says no as God leads us. But we always have that sort of love and compassion. And this man has and he goes, this can't, this can't wait. My plans can wait. This can't wait. So he puts his plans on hold. And if you notice, he takes on the form of a servant, you could say. He gets low and he binds up and washes this man's wounds. He gets in to the mess of this guy's situation. And he, he, he's an agent of grace, an agent of healing. He sets him on his own animal. Probably donkey or something like that. Did you catch that? He's saying basically, you ride I'll walk. I'll forego my comfort. I'll forego my, you know, what I had hoped to, to kind of be cruising into town on my sweet ride. I'll let you take it. He led him to an inn where the man could rest and revive. He took care of him. Verse 34, he opened up his wallet. That's what denarii means. It means, here you go. How much do you need? Let me write the check. Let me drop the cash on the table. Let me leave open the tab because I'm going to come back and I'm going to clear it when I do. You notice, yeah, he's going to come back and settle any accounts. He's not just a one-off thing. He is concerned and committed to this man's restoration. He's moved into this story. And he's going to see it through. And he does, again, all of this for a man who commentators agree was most certainly a Jew. A Jewish man who, were he healthy would have given one of those X things and walked on the other side as well. Get away from me, Samaritan. What are you even doing here? And here is the Samaritan moving towards that kind of man with love. He was a good neighbor. He was an elementary school boy moving towards a, an elementary school girl who just got made fun of and is having a bad day. Whatever, let them say what they want about cooties or whatever. I, I want to care for this person. Who's hurt? He was a good neighbor. And this is where Jesus is going to go next. Um, Jesus uh, comes out of this parable with a question, really, for the lawyer and for us. Verse 36, verse 36 he says, Which of these three do you think Prove to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. All right, we got the story straight. Now, here's the point. Jesus is driving us towards it. Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, you have to catch what Jesus does here. You got to catch it. Because just as he kind of flipped the question back on his self-designated proctor uh, back up in verse 25 and 26. So here now he's flipping the question back on this lawyer. Up in the beginning, it was, hey, what do I have to do to inherit, inherit eternal life? Well, you tell me. Now it was, well, who exactly is my neighbor? Now he's basically saying, you tell me. But he's not just saying that, is he? He's actually reframing the entire question. Not just flipping it back on him. He's reframing the question. Did you catch it? He's putting a spin on it. The question at first was, who is my neighbor? The question now really is, am I a neighbor? Are you a neighbor? You see, this man was going, okay, tell me who those people are and I will love them. Jesus says, tell me, are you the neighbor? 
He kind of takes uh, the, the word neighbor, which we would think of as a noun, and he says, no, no, no. It's like better to think of it like a verb. To be a neighbor is to go somewhere. It's to move towards people. So stop talking about who are those few that are called neighbors and ask the question, are you a neighbor? Which of these three proved to be a neighbor to this man who had fallen on hard times? To drive it even further for us, I want you to see the difference. The former asks, the first question kind of asks, how much do I have to do? Tell me, how much do I have to do? And I guess I'll try to do it. I'm probably already doing it because I'm a lawyer. The second question that Jesus is trying to get this man to ask is, how much can I do? The first question is focused on doing what's required and nothing more. The last question is excited to go and above and beyond. The first question is concerned with who those people out there are. The second question is concerned with who I am. And you get it. If you're in the place of asking the first question, whether it's about the first type of question, whether it's about who's my neighbor or it's about, oh, what does Jesus really mean when he says, I, you know, what is what is uh, 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 sexual sin exactly? Or oh, what is what is really telling a lie mean? Or what does it really mean that we're supposed to keep holy the Sabbath there? What does it really mean that we're supposed to? And we try to wiggle out of these things. If that's our heart, it's already kind of, well, show me the requirements. How much do I have to do? Oh. We've missed it. We're already off track. We're trying to reduce the, the, the call of God on us to something we can manage and justify ourselves in doing even as we disobey. The second question gets something of the grace of God. Am I a neighbor? Says, wait a minute. What can I do? Says, wait a minute. I'm a, God has come towards me with this love. He has neighbored up with me. Man. What can I do to move towards not just those in my vicinity, immediate vicinity, but all people in my life and even in the world? This is what this is the sort of thing that moves people across the world. As missionaries and things like that. It's the same idea of loving neighbor because we've been loved. You're getting something of the grace. You're getting something of what it means to be freely justified in Jesus. So you no longer have to worry about trying to justify yourself and make the law something you can manage. You know you can't, but he did. So you're free to go in concern for others rather than yourself. Now, I, I thought at this point of, um, of William Wilberforce, I, I loved... Uh, that man, I love the, the, the movie that they made of his life, uh, Amazing Grace. He was a British politician, uh, came to Christ, evangelical Christian, who uh, was uh, significant, probably one of the most significant factors in the slave trade there in uh, the British Empire being abolished. And uh, I don't know if this is true to life or not, but there was a scene in the movie that captivated me. There was a scene in the movie that captivated me, and I have not forgotten it, even though I probably saw it, I don't even know, eight, eight, ten years ago with the college kids at the ministry that I led. Uh, we went to the theaters after that night and watched this movie. And the scene that I remember was uh, most vividly was him as he would go to sleep. He would wake up with these with these dreams uh, he would have almost like these nightmares and, and in his nightmare, what it was, was it was African Africans and, and things in the slave trade and their pain and their suffering and their burdens. And he would see their chains. He'd wake up just hot, sweaty, burdened in love, in compassion for the suffering of others. And I came away from that movie saying, my goodness, I want to be like that. How many times do I lay awake at night with concern for myself, my suffering, my needs, my struggles? And I'm watching this man 
And he is compelled. He is constrained. He is burdened by the pain, suffering, struggles of others. It moves him because he knows the free love of God for him in Jesus. It moves him towards others. I came out of there going, listen, college kids, please, from this day forward, I want to be called Weberforce. Call me Nicholas Weberforce. I want... Some people did it. I wanted to be like this man. I wanted to be like William Wilberforce. I want to be burdened, not with my own stuff all the time. But no, God has that so I can move towards the burdens of others. That's what this is all about. What keeps you up at night, I wonder? Is it your own stuff? When's the last time it's been someone else's pain that's got you praying at midnight? Planning your next day. Okay. We're almost done, kids. You're doing well. Um, We've looked at uh, here now wrong questions and kind of made our way towards the right answers as Jesus gets this man to think about these things. Am I a neighbor? Now, finally, we move towards the gospel pictures that have kind of been uh, emerging throughout. Um, Now, this is uh, where we'll draw things to a close, but I I, I want you to see this. We have to see this uh, because at the end of the day, this parable really is for us a profound picture of the gospel. It portrays for us something of the good news of Jesus and what he's done in his life, death and resurrection. And I want you to see this because I think one of the errors that we can um, make as we come to this parable is we kind of immediately think that we're supposed to be the Samaritan. We put ourselves in the place of the Samaritan. And I understand this because it kind of that's kind of what Jesus does with this man. He says, you go and do likewise. That's how the parable ends. He goes, yes, you're right. The Samaritan was the good neighbor. You go and do likewise. We go, okay, I'm going to go and do likewise. But you and I, who are familiar with our Bibles, know Jesus is doing more than that. He's trying to get this man to realize, I I can't do that. You go and do likewise, that would be like reaching towards the Samaritan. (laughs) And the Gentile, that would be like reaching towards the... This man's going to walk away and go, wait a minute. I I don't have this in and of myself to do it. When I reduced it, I felt good and I could justify myself. Now I feel utterly lost. We know... That it's not a one for one. Here's the command and now we're going to go and do. We know that there is something in between. We know that man doesn't have it in and of himself. History plays this out both secularly in in the secular world and in the biblical story. Right? Just again and again. We don't have the ability to move towards our neighbor like this Samaritan here does. So if all we do is go, wow, the Samaritan's a great example. Here I go. We're back with the lawyer. We don't try to justify ourselves. We need something in between. Something has to happen in between this this call to love my neighbor like the Samaritan and my actually doing it. And here's where we move towards the gospel. What scripture makes plain is that if we are to love others in this way, we first have to let God come in Jesus and love us. It's what John says in 1 John 4.19. He puts it as plainly as it can be. We love because he first loved us. In other words, there's a cause. If you are loving your neighbor, if you want to grow in loving other people, even your enemies, even those with cooties, even whatever, The bullies at school, if you want to love, if you want to grow in loving them, the way, the first step is to know the love of God for you in Jesus. There's a cause behind our love for others, and it's God's love for us. We love because he first loved us. And what this means then, as we look at this parable through this lens, is that the Samaritan here, before he is a picture of what we are to be, is actually first a picture of what Jesus already is for us. Did, Did you hear me? 
Before the Samaritan is a picture of you and I. He is a picture of Christ, which means you and I, brothers and sisters, what God would want us to see is that we are in the dirt with that man. We are we are half dead or as we'll see even more so. But we are in that desperate place of need. We need the grace, the mercy, the love of God to intervene or it's over for us. Now, here's what I found to be incredible. Um, this parable is wonderful. It brings out amazing pictures uh, for us of the gospel. But what we come to find as we kind of connect the dots towards what Jesus does for us on the cross is that it actually kind of amplifies all that we see here in the parable actually gets even greater as we move towards what Jesus actually does in time and space and history. Let me show you this as we draw this to a close. In the parable, this man was a helpless victim of robbers, right? Helpless victim. But what we learn in the gospel is that you and I are not merely victims. We are willing rebels. We're not just, oh, well, we, we're worthy of compassion. We actually deserve judgment and condemnation. We are not helpless victims in reality. We are willing rebels. In the parable, this man is said to be half dead, verse 30. But Ephesians 2, 1, Paul says, listen, you guys, we're not half dead, but fully dead in your trespasses and sins. We're dead. It's not, hey, I'm a little sick here. Help me out. I'll recover. It's I'm at the bottom of the ocean. I, the heart has stopped beating. It's over for me unless there is divine, gracious, merciful intervention. In the parable, we're told that the Samaritan man was simply journeying from one location to the next. But in the gospel, we learn that Jesus doesn't just go from one mere location on earth to another location. We, re we recognize that he bridges the gap between heaven and earth. That he leaves, he journeys from heaven to us. He's not just traveling from one destination to the next. He's leaving the glory that he had with his father before the ages began to come after a people who had already rejected him and would reject him yet again. In the parable, we're told that the Samaritan bound up this man's wounds. But in the gospel, we learn that Jesus doesn't just bind up our wounds. He bears them. He takes them on himself by his wounds. We are healed. In the parable, the Samaritan pours out oil and wine to refresh him. But in the gospel, Jesus doesn't just pour out oil and wine. He pours out his blood. I mean, Paul says in Romans 5, 9, we have now been justified by his blood. What was it that this man, this lawyer so desperately wanted to justify himself? And here we see it's freely offered to us. We can be made right, counted right by the blood of Christ. Not just wine and oil, but his blood. In the parable, the Samaritan puts the wounded man on his animal's back. But in the gospel, we could say Jesus carries us on his own back. In the parable, the Samaritan leads the wounded man to an inn. But in the gospel, we learn that Jesus is preparing a place for us in his father's house. That he's taking us home with God. In the parable... The Samaritan pays for the man's needs with two denarii or a couple days wages. But the, in the gospel, Jesus pays for our needs with his own life. He doesn't just open up his wallet. He opens up his chest and says, take my heart. Catch that? Take my life. I give it all for you. In the parable, the Samaritan commits to return for the man and to settle any accounts that he owes to the innkeeper. But in the gospel, we learn that Jesus is not just going to return to pay off any, you know, previous debts we've incurred. He's going to return to invite us into the reception of his glorious inheritance. Eternal life. So in every way, the 
picture that we catch in this parable about the Samaritan and the gospel and how it you know, portrays Jesus, it's amplified in reality. We are the guy on the, on the dirt, in the dirt, on the ground. And he is the one who moves in, neighbors up to us, loves us back to life so that we can go now by his spirit and do likewise with those in our lives. Let's pray. God, right now we we know what the first step. The first step to loving neighbor is not gearing up to love our neighbor. It's not looking within ourselves, it's looking to you. It's admitting that we can't. It's admitting that we we don't want to sometimes. It's admitting that we see sin and rebelliousness in us. It's admitting that we need your mercy and then receiving it freely. So Jesus, right now, I pray there'd be no attempts to justify self. We don't want to do that here. We want to find our justification in Christ. He is the only righteous, the only perfect one. And he gave his life for us. God, we receive you. We love you. And we want to give our lives in turn for others. It is the greatest joy to know your love. I mean, we feel in our bones sometimes that we are just off. We're blemished. We're broken. We don't know the way up from the dirt. Hopeless, depressed, scared. And then your love breaks in. And we know that you accept us right where we are. And you move towards us. You're not expecting us to pick ourselves up from the dirt or to clean ourselves off. Instead, in fact, often that's an offense. You want us to throw ourselves down at your feet and say, help. And you move towards and you wash and you clean and you put us back together little by little. And we have our ups and we have our downs, but we have our God who is faithful, compassionate, merciful, steadfast in love for us through it all. What an anchor we have in you. I pray we really would be on that altar today, God. And I pray that as we... Lay down our arms and let you love us. I pray that you would move us, compel us with compassion for others. Let us be the neighbor, whoever our neighbors may be. Let us be like you. Thank you for starting that momentum and catching us up in it by your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.